of Los Altos Institute's uh, 13 Lectures on Original Doctor Who by Stuart Parker. Uh, these episodes are being made available as a free service by our institute. They include uh, both a lecture and question and answer session for each class. However, you may find the question and answer sessions are a little choppy because part, some participants have requested that their voices and remarks be removed. All right, let's, uh, let's get America moving again here. Now, uh, Inferno has some really good points to it, some really bad points to it, has some very bad ideas about how fire extinguishers work. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and it, it might have some other bad ideas. But in many ways, I think Inferno, more than any of the... This is the first color season of the show. It's the second season with Barry Letts as the producer, who brings a much more feminist sensibility to the show than his predecessors. Uh, so... The 1970s, so they, in many ways, this first color season sets up what Doctor Who is to become. It's the first season where the Doctor has only one companion. The idea of the Doctor with, as this older uh, guy with an opposite sex companion who is not a love interest, that starts here. So the thing that... Um, made Russell Davies and his crew invest so heavily in bringing the show back is a property that the show develops in 1970. It, for, for, the, for the people who read this show as proto Will and Grace, um, this is the season where that begins, where you have a very flamboyant gentleman very attractive young woman and no no romantic sparks flying at all uh, even though they've given the doctor a companion who has much more in common with him than any companion he had during the 60s so we recognize then that um so this this is really important in a uh, this 1970 season and it's Carol and John, Liz Shaw's only season, which is really sad because as you can see, her character is probably the most feminist character we have in the history of the show. And uh, she's a great actor. And she even came back for a shitty bit part in The Five Doctors. So it's a tragedy. We only have Carol and John and Liz Shaw for one season. But in that, that first color season, 
we see the development of this dynamic that allows gay men to read the show in a particular way and uh, to identify with the main character in a particular way. Uh, Michael remarks that, uh, of course, our main icon for second wave feminism in the show is Sarah Jane Smith because she is Liz Sladen's a longstanding friend of the show, only person in two spinoffs from the show, lots of Sarah Jane episodes. Um, but in many ways, by the time Sarah Jane is created as a character, people have this sense of the limitations, what second wave feminism will let them do and what it won't let them do. Um, Liz Shaw never screams. The screaming has to be brought back. Um, we don't have non-screaming companions until Leela. Uh, and uh, so it's important to recognize that lots of stuff they do in 1970, they have to walk back and not do again until the late 1970s, either with Louise Jameson or Mary Tam. So... Uh, Liz Shaw is a great character to watch. She's a harbinger of things to come, but she's also an exceedingly unpopular companion. And she's not just unpopular because she's assertive in a way that, you know, even modern feminism generally can't achieve for women. Um, not, but it's actually her knowledge that uh, people really rebel against because the companions have traditionally been used as tools for explaining what the doctor knows. And that's baked into the show originally, right? Originally, the doctor is supposed to be interpreted by a high school math teacher or a high school history teacher. That's Barbara and Ian. And uh, so the idea that, so the companion functions as um, well in a, an ironically feminized role, which I didn't dwell on last week because I thought I'd slip it in now, uh, Dr. Watson. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, that, that it's, it's the companion's job to be Dr. Watson. And if you don't ask enough questions of the doctor, the show is formulaic and lazy, so it won't find ways to explain what he's thinking uh, because it's not going to resort to voiceover narration. So Liz Shaw isn't just unpopular because she's um, a little bit more self-controlled and self-reliant than even alleged feminists of the time are comfortable with. It's also a hole in the formula that you need, uh, that the companion can't know this stuff because then who's gonna get it explained to the audience? So, um, uh, so the doctor companion dynamic is really interesting in this episode, it's interesting. And I think more than any other, the fact that they have somehow put an, um, an American in a love story in the show, like which never happens any other time, 
it's you really it's not until the new series that people on the show are falling in love with non-main characters and we're following that subplot episode after episode uh it's also striking that um uh because you can come you can see a romantic relationship on screen and so it's the show being very clear on the fact that there are no sparks between the doctor and his companion right that this show really um uh really forces you into into going okay there is no possibility of a romantic relationship here so Liz shows the only human who can ever fix the TARDIS in any other episode. The only other companions who can actually repair the TARDIS are the two Time Lords. Uh, so she hits a very high bar here. But also certain problems in feminism haven't really been talked about. And so we have her boots um, and these, these really superb outfits. Right, the feminist movement is not in conflict yet about the gendering of clothing and the meaning of that clothing. There's still, at this point, Cosmopolitan is still a barrier-breaking magazine and Helen Gurley <laughs> Brown's You Can Have It All um, is still a master discourse with Liz Shaw. When we come back in 1978-79, we have to spend a lot of time talking about Romana's clothes. Those clothes are really important, how much she controls them, how they're gendered, all this stuff. Uh, but that's not a debate yet. We just have Carol and John looking fabulous. We see this in generally, uh, we see some of that liberal feminism really strongly in the Pertwee years, the idea that, um, uh, well, it's, it's become the feminist norm again. Uh, it's like, oh my goodness, if we could just name people and call them out, we could sort this out right away. We have a set of bad actors and a set of bad cultural expectations that can be solved with <laughs> gumption. And uh, we really see that strongly in the, um, the two Peladon shows where they're, um, you know, showing uh, Katie Manning's <coughs> Joe Grant in these uh, as a liberating figure, even though she's the classic, you know, screamer, objectified companion. Uh, they show her as a liberating figure because she has all this gumption. <coughs> And that's all that's required to change structural violence or large political systems. So we know this is early second wave. We'll spend a bunch of time in late second wave um, a little further on. But um, as compelling a character as Liz Shaw is to us, uh, not compelling in her time. Now the central, the central reason I wanted to start here is that this show epitomizes Doctor, the, the, it contains all of the themes in original Doctor Who Cold War anxiety. That if this is a scary show and you're watching your children be scared, but you're watching your children be scared by a thing you're scared about. And you're especially scared about it because of the war. And so, 
we got to remember that the golden age of Doctor Who is contemporaneous with the two Faulty Towers seasons. Uh, that, uh, that we're at this point we're st- where people are still processing the war, but they're also <clears throat> now thinking about themselves as like inhibited British people who are scared of a lot on their own merits, the war aside. Uh, now, so the first ethical, the first thing about the war that hits us, even before the usual episodes about the war, and by that I mean 70% of the original series, um, the first thing that hits us is we're in Dr. Strangelove, in a sense, because you're because the villain is Werner von Braun. That's Dr. Stallman, right? That we so love that, that, that we so need the technology of the Nazis that we're gonna save these Nazis and we're gonna put them to work for us. But they're really not very trustworthy. And in <laughs> fact, we know that the reason they're good at their jobs is because they're still Nazis. <laughs> so that's all baked in with Dr. Stallman. And, um, this is not the only time the original series does this. Um, there's a bunch of Werner von Braun episodes. Um, Brain of Morbius is obviously mainly Dr. Frankenstein, but there's a decent amount of Werner von Braun stirred in there. But then you get Planet of Evil, which is just Inferno again, but half as long and with worse special effects. Um, where you've got the German fascist who's the only German in the cast um, who has some technology that only his brilliant mind knows and he's going to go and commit a bunch of atrocities to get that done. We see a little Mengele stirred in with our Von Braun. Um, So we have Planet of Evil where they do that again. Um, Brain of Morbius, where they sort of do that image of the Fendal. Again, the one German guy, the genius who has this technology that's going to destroy the world. And so they really like Werner von Braun. They make him three times uh, this season. Joey? Well, as uh, Tom Lehrer would say, Werner von Braun. Uh, no, once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? It's not my department. <laughs> yes, and and they're and they use these German scientists as a way to explore various ethical issues. So, uh, in terms of human villains, the remaking of Werner von Braun is pretty central to the golden age of Doctor Who. Now, um. So, Image of the Fendal, Inferno, Planet of Evil, there's this idea that by using the technology the Germans have given us, we have been contaminated with their ethics. And all three shows deal with this idea of impurity, contamination, and contagion, the master ideas of eugenics, but turned against eugenics. It's like if this substance physically contaminates you, you'll become a eugenicist. So there's um, 
So one of the ways then that they're thinking about fascism, their anxieties about fascism, is that it would just take something subtle, something invisible, like a pathogen to be released into our society, and we would all become Nazis, right? One of the things we find again and again in Doctor Who's interaction with the Second World War which they finally verbalize in the last show they film, Curse of Fenric. Their big fear of the Second World War is who they became and who they could become. The sense that, that their decency could be contaminated. And sometimes it's like, well, we'll become like the Germans, but there's, but there's also, as we see in Curse of Fenric, but we were the people who blew up all those German children. We were the people who bombed Dresden. This is, and so, so much of the fear we can see is the fear of who the British people could become. And that's why we see contagion is the one, and contamination, it's explored through in the three von Braun episodes, but there's an even more common theme, which is de-individuation. The idea that um, the reason you could become a fascist is we, we'd all just become the same person. That, that there would be an industrial process that would, relate, uh, that would erase our individuality. And that this industrial process will take us over and destroy our individuality. And so we've got to remember it's in the 70s where they do the Dalek origin myth. We don't know that the Daleks were originally people until the, the show decides that in 1975 in Genesis of the Daleks. So the idea that the Dalek represents that de-individuation, the Daleks are clearly fascists all along, but the idea that they were, that they were people who became fascists is, an, is something that's introduced in the 70s. Um, the Cybermen from the beginning, 1966, is about an industrial process that deprives people who were human of their emotions, and uh, that this, um, and that this is what makes the Cybermen scary is that they can capture you and convert you. Uh, in the Patrick Troughton years. Um, that was a much bigger danger with the Cybermen. It doesn't come back as a danger with the Cybermen until 1984 in Attack of the Cybermen with Colin Baker. But until then, uh, but originally the Cybermen, uh, a lot of the fear is about the idea that you could be captured and turned into one. And that's how they work as a monster until 68. In 67, the last Dalek plot until 1971, um, changes how the Daleks are and it makes it possible for their consciousness to be a contagion that affects humans. And this thing called the Dalek factor is introduced. And so again, um, and so we're awash in this theme. Spearhead from space, the Autons, great horror story about de-individuation, lack of free will, this single hive life form that absorbs the <laughs> ego of everyone else. Um, 
claws of Axos. Uh, so people are watching this over and over again at this point, this, these, uh, this fear around um, who they could become. Alana. Although at least some of that with, with the Cybermen and so forth, I think is also um, metaphorical for the, the fear of communism in Cold War Britain as well. Absolutely. And um, I, I do think that's the case, especially um, Chinese communism as it's depicted. Often Russian communism is depicted in contrast um, in a way that is about crazy people getting in charge, not everybody being the same. Um, the, um, it's this idea that, that it's the system of promotion with perverse incentives rather than us. It's very easy to believe that these white Russian people are yearning for freedom under this yoke, uh, something that uh, people lack the emotional generosity to imagine for Chinese people. Uh, so um, the other thing is where Inferno stands out and why I think it, it deserves respect as a Doctor Who serial is that it explores the possibility that goodness is contingent, that present within all of us is the capacity for evil. And this was of course the central debate um, of the um, Holocaust intellectuals um, orbiting around the Eichmann trial in 66. Uh, Hannah Arendt's idea of the banality of evil books like Hitler's Willing Executioners um, at the center of the Cold War public square, I would say really from, from Eichmann's kidnapping in 65 until, um, uh, until about 1974 when Anwar <laughs> Sadat um, uh, when Anwar Sadat pulls out of the anti-Israel coalition. I think that 66 to 65 to 74 is really the crescendo of the world listening to Holocaust intellectuals about this question of uh, evil. Um, so this idea that anyone can be made evil is easy for people to handle. Um, and we get that with our Cybermen, with our, uh, with our Daleks, that any soul might be turned to evil. But the idea that your evil is contingent, that you might be good or evil based on historical chance, is I think really explored in the old series only in this show. Mm. Um, the idea that the brigadier would have been the adversary, that the, the, the brigadier is actually does not have a personality that is naturally good. It's a thing the show never retracts. I think it's one of the things that makes the brigadier a compelling character that people want to bring back in the 80s, that people want to meet the new doctor right up until Nicholas Courtney dies. Um, it's that the, the brigadier, like everybody's sort of accepted that the brigadier is kind of an asshole pretty early on. 
But then John Pertwee's plague of the first of the third doctor, especially in season one, the doctor is also an asshole. <laughs> and, uh, and, but here we go. No, actually some of these people would have been good people, no matter what. Some of these people change sides in the episode as the, as the weight of fascism on them recedes more people have the option to do good things. But the brigadier's personality becomes more and more frightened. He becomes a more odious person as the fascism recedes. And I, I'm really reminded of, I'm, I've been trying to do some writing about Mr. Rogers um, for quite a while. And what I found very interesting was that last year, the two Mr. Rogers movies uh, that had come out over the few, past few years, I, I watched them both. And they both indirectly stated an incredibly compelling theory of, Mr. Ro of Fred Rogers, which is that Fred Rogers is a person born with crippling anger management problems who had to effectively create a kind of secularized ascetic life that was hyper routine and full of rules to control this rage about which he could speak very eloquently with very little provocation. Um, and uh, so you see that like, uh, you know, Mr. Rogers' message is there's nothing naturally good about him. He acts this weird because he's filled with the desire to do evil. And we can see that with the brigadier that the military authority, yes, it makes him kind of bad in the parallel world, but it makes him a better man in this world that social forces outside of him, controlling him, make him a better person or exerting pressure on him, make him a better person. So, um, and here we also really see how this is the decade that gave us faulty towers. Um, there's this one guy who um, appears to be naturally um, whatever he is and is unaffected by cultural mores. And so it has to be someone with a fake American accent. Um, no actual American can be as unimpeded by rules and a sense of shame as an American imagined by British people in the <laughs> 60s and 70s. Uh, this is John Cleese's story of his very bad marital decisions. This desire to engage with people who are, who somehow there's just something about their, their character, their national character. That, that makes them somehow impervious to authority, makes them self-authorized people. Um, and so the idea that you've got, um, now of course, uh, what's his name, uh, is not um, the guy who makes the difference between, survive, between success and failure in the two worlds. So on the one hand, you've got this, uh, this worship of Americans who can, slough off orders from above in a way that British people can't. Now, of course, British people are just like everybody else. The only people who are still like this are us. Uh, Canadians are really the closest thing to the people John Cleese was mocking 50 years ago. Uh, 
we've only grown more inhibited, more obsessed with other people's opinions. Uh, but um, in uh, but it's not um, you know it's not the American who makes the difference. What's totally nutty in this show that I love that I don't even know what to do with is that this show is in many ways um, trying to. Um, uh, trying to get um, um, oh, what's his name? I can't believe I've forgotten this. Um, uh, the uh, so he succeeds. Who? Pardon me. You mean the oil rig specialist they bring in? Uh, no, no. Uh, I was Derek. talking about him, but I was talking. No, I was going to say that he, although he's important symbolically, he doesn't change the fate of the other world. It's. Uh, uh, so who's the labor leader who's just lost the election in 1970? Heath has just won. Um, Giovardi. Uh, pardon me? Giovardi. Uh, well, in a, in a terrible meta way. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the kind of work I was expecting you to do on this call, Joey. Thank you. But um, what is his name? Um, You're talking about a, a real person? or a Yeah, the, the real show? person. The guy who was just, who was prime minister when they wrote the show, but not when they filmed it. And? So, so it's, right, he becomes McMillan. the prime minister in 64. McMillan? Yes, McMillan was the prime minister in 64. Um, or Wilson. Yes, thank you. Later. Thank you, Harold Wilson. There we go. Um, elected to a minority in '64, uh, re-elected to a majority in '66. Um, uh, not um, just a second here. Uh, yeah, he was out from '70 to '74. Um, and our. Uh, um, one second, please. Yeah, so Harold Wilson. Um, Harold Wilson, this is a justification of Harold Wilson's bizarre flip-flop on the monarchy. So um, Ramsey MacDonald and Clement Attlee, the first two Labour prime ministers, um, have to make common cause with the monarchy under exigent circumstances. Uh, and so the strong Republican trend in labor really doesn't exist uh, in that, uh, or rather is dormant in that period because their leader has a good excuse for why they haven't terminated the monarchy. This is not the case when Harold Wilson comes to power. Harold Wilson is understood to be a Republican. Um, he is backed by Republican forces in labor, uh, gets into office and promptly becomes uh, the most obsequious monarchist, uh, utterly charmed by the monarchy. He's like um, uh, Andrew Johnson, right? That he's just never been to such a nice dinner before. He's culturally unequipped. And so, Harold, uh, and so one of the things then is they have to narrate this propagandistically as to why it is better for workers that there be a monarchy rather than an elected presidency. Mm. And so this, I think we really see in the person of Sir Keith Gold, that it's the 
person who has been anointed by both the prime minister and the monarch, who is understood to be the voice of sober second thought, and is understood to be a distinctly British force that holds the project back from becoming terrible. And so, um, and so he's removed in the fascist version because Oswald Mosley's fascists were Republicans. They were an SA tribute party that came out of the left wing of labor uh, in terms of the membership, not in terms of Mosley himself. And so this, um, and so one of the things we see in this is the, uh, is labor's sudden um, justification of its, uh, of its new relationship with the monarchy. And so lots of progressive folks who would want to see Wilson reelected in 1970 would be weighing in on cultural projects like this, showing that the idea of royal commissions and these long-standing ideas from Magna Carta constitute some kind of proto-socialism in Britain or this X factor that makes Britain not a fascist state. Um, so, uh, hang on. But, just, I, but um, I find, I find when you talk about Sir Keith Gold, the, um, the person that plays him, Christopher Benjamin, mm-hmm. uh, in the TV series, The Prisoner, he kind of plays sort of a Nazi psychiatrist in the first episode, uh, Arrival. And, um, I saw Arrival first before I ever saw Inferno. And it just, it almost seemed like the character bounced from the prisoner to Inferno. Um, and it was very much, as you're saying, you know, Sir, Sir Keith is sort of uh, keeping things, trying to keep things going. But in the same token, uh, Benjamin himself seems to be a constant and he seems to be evil in many ways. So, I mean, this is a big question around intertextuality that I wasn't going to visit until we got to uh, City of Death um, with the obvious cameos and the the real star poaching with Julian Glover. Uh, But I, I I think it's worth coming to here. I'm very much on the fence as to, there are two reasons you get certain guys showing up a lot on TV in the 70s. One is that it's a proto-intertextuality that people are using meanings and associations with the person's previous roles in order to inform the script in a way that people don't start talking about until the 80s. The other interpretation is that people are very loyal and they hire their friends a lot even if they're um, quite affable, uh, even, you know, especially if their friends are quite affable. And um, my sense is that um, unless Doctor Who signals to you that it's, um, that it's making an intertextual play with the resume of the actor, it strikes me as more often that the, sh- the show really likes rehiring people. One of the things that makes it a strong show, even when it ends up with, you know, it's terrible last producer for nine years is that there's such a strong culture of loyalty 
in the show around uh, the writers and the um, and, and the actors that I, I I would tend to lean more in that direction. I wouldn't see it as as referential to Arrival. I mean, this character is a. I mean, he's an imperialist X factor. You know, he's like somehow there's this halo around the monarchy that is justice producing. Now, um, yes, um, I, I think it's mostly in the posters. I am very bad with sight. Um, I, I don't- meant to be implying mostly. Yeah, it, which is- It really is, it really is the head of BBC special effects. Is it? Okay, well that, yeah. that's fun. But I, I think it's, I think it's meant to be, I, I think it's meant to be what, like I think it's meant to be implying mostly. Or, well, or I think that it has to it has to be because the other person you'd imply is Edward VIII, and it's making a different argument. And I think yeah, it, it kind of has to be Mosley because the implication I think is that Mosley took power before the war, and thus England went into the war on the side of the Axis, and and that and it is. It is mostly in the novelizations that build upon the alternate universes. Yeah, it's certainly like the poster certainly looks like Mosley, even if it's even if they use someone else for the for the photo. It, it the the styling is very Mosley. And I think Mosley is still a politician at this point as an old man. So you, yeah, you so wouldn't, they might you not wouldn't, have you, you would not directly represent a living for, person for copyright reasons. But it, but it's certainly it's certainly meant to be implying Mosley. But well, I mean, I, I think that's just for trivia about British fascism. The reason British fascism fails in large measure has to do with um, the fact that the party is an SA tribute party, not an SS tribute party. And so after the Night of the Long Knives, that it gets really hard to say they're paralleling Germany because it's a working class party um of the people that were all massacred in uh germany in 1934 so it tacks back to associating more with italy and with uh, spain and it adopts this republicanism and so fascism's running on two parallel paths that can't make an alliance in the 30s one path is edward the eighth one path is oswald mosley but the upper class fascists are all with Edward VIII. The working class fascists are all with Mosley, and there's no possibility for rapprochement. Now, let me just uh, uh, hit a few points so that we don't go over time. So, yes, let's remember this party is anti-clerical and anti-monarchical. So it's it's a it's a, it's Mosley's party, um, and now. There's this um, who would become a fascist, um, this decision to make the brigadier one of the people who would become a fascist, I think is probably one of the um, gutsiest things the show has done. Um, because it's so it's such a Christian argument to make, right? They're making this show at the zenith of the secularization thesis and uh, this idea that we can keep seeing this person as a good guy, even though it's not in their nature to be good. 
it's because of a choice they made to be good um, is uh, it's one of the weird things Doctor Who can get away with. The fact that it has such high ratings that it's just this chaotic mixture of what's going on in society around it without really, I mean, there's influence from the producer, but ultimately it's the show people are watching and it's the show that has to appeal to a certain extent. And so I think it's, it's incoherence is one of the things that makes it possible to um, keep running with unit despite a, an essentially anti-progressive argument about uh, morality. Now, um, I, I think I've hit the notes I wanted to hit. Um, free will, feminism, contagion, de-individuation, this crucial period where Hannah Arendt and Bruno Bettelheim and these other folks are um, fighting it out with each other on a world stage while the world watches Holocaust survivors theorize evil for us. And uh, that's... Um, uh, that's the environment of the best years of the show. And we'll see these themes returning again and again. We'll go deeper into a number of them. But uh, Inferno, I think, is the one that's got all of the major thematic material that will unfold through the golden age of the show to varying degrees in varying quantities. All right, so that's it for me. Um, Michael, you typed things into the chat most recently. Mirror, mirror in Star Trek. Let's go there. Yeah, when I when I saw this episode for the first time, it reminded me very much of Mirror, Mirror, the notion of a alternate alternate bad guy fascist universe, right down to the use of an eye patch and an eye scar. So. <laughs> I'm assuming the writer of the episode, or perhaps Barry Letts, um, you know, was paying tribute to that because there's there's a whole lot of parallel there. But um, the the difference, of course, being the Doctor doesn't exist in the fascist universe. He's the only piece that doesn't seem to have a parallel, which separates it from the Star Trek episode. But the um, the depictions of the reverse characters I thought was great. I, in some ways, uh, I wish that um, this had only been a four-parter and they had just shoved them into the fastest universe for the entire story and then come back at the end. Because every time we cut from the fascist universe to the regular universe, I would get disappointed because I was enjoying watching these characters be bad guys so much. Yeah, and I thought the pacing was much faster in the fascist universe, <laughs> and the um, the breakdown at the very end where um, the brigade leader keeps screaming at Petra to solve, you know, to save them and solve their problems, and she's yelling at him, telling him, you know, to get off her ass because she's trying to get some, you know, work done, and. Um, the the Liz Shaw fascist character starts poking her, her soon-to-be former boss and keeps reminding him that he's incompetent, that only Petra or the doctor have the knowledge that can save them, and he's getting crazier and crazier. Like that whole part of it was wonderful. I really enjoyed that. 
And uh, <laughs> when he finally has his breakdown in the garage, when uh, is Sutton, I think, is the oil rig guy's name? Yeah, Greg Sutton. Yeah, yeah when Sutton uh, confronts him and starts calling him a coward and saying, you know, he, he's, he's got nothing. Um, and then, of course, one of the worst fight scenes ever. But uh, I loved his, his collapse into cowardice. And, uh, you know, waving a German pistol around was a nice extra prop. But uh, that was all I had. All right, folks. Other uh, observations and questions? Alana. Um, I really liked how, like in contrast to the Brigadier, um, there's, there's sort of a, a core of similarity between Liz Shaw's characters in the two different universes. And it's not necessarily that she's good it's that she's she has this instinct towards science and towards trying to find trying to figure out what is actually happening in the situation like she's she's oriented to um you know towards reality in a way that that some of the other characters are not and that's what connects the two two versions of her across the universe is that she she has the instinct to question orthodoxy in the interests of of science and I, yeah i find that i found that really interesting sort of on rewatch yes yeah, that comes up a couple times where she directly contradicts the brigadier brigade leader saying you know you're just un you're incapable of you know, coloring outside the lines. And that shows up in the regular world where um, the head scientist refuses to look at the printouts from the computer because it will contradict the bizarre yeah. reality that he's building for himself. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm oh, sorry. Um, ultimately, ultimately, Liz Shaw, you know, her character leaves the show and sort of why she leaves is because she's, um, she's not really interested in playing second fiddle to the doctor. And so there's, yeah, so this, I, I don't know, there's just something really interesting about the way they structure her character and, and the way that, that carries through that I really like. Well, uh, or it's a compulsion because we, we don't have examples of people continuing to fight this thing because it's primarily a disease of the will. Um, we see the same behavior, by the way, with the uh, in Planet of Evil, the even more atrocious uh, uh, version of, of, of this story um, with, uh, uh, with the, this thing functioning as an addiction, an obvious parallel to an addiction that uh, initially is repugnant and then it is uh, attractive beyond will. Jonathan. Well, what I notice is that Stallman's infection proceeds far more slowly than anyone else's. Mm. He embraces it deliberately, mm. he cooperates with it, and it doesn't really need to take him over as overtly as others. And the interesting thing about these zombies, of course, is that they're not zombies. They're very intelligently carrying out the will of the green goo, which is a will to complete yeah. the project, succeed in the drilling, 
and vaporized the earth. Because apparently the earth is full of, of this will to its own destruction and always has been. Well, I, I don't think it's the it's the earth uh, destroying itself. I think it's uh, the green goo is the fever that's going to burn away the infection, which is meddling humans trying to <laughs> uh, wreck everything. No, 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 not at all. Why would the what is what does the green goo have that is being wrecked? The thing is, what it, what the green goo is is the Fred Hoyle organism, right? Like, there's two different Fred Hoyle ideas in this story. Mm. One is oh. that the crust contains vast amounts of abiogenic fossil, uh, abiogenic carbon fuels, which can be, which are primordial and can be obtained by deep drilling, which was something he actually tried to do. Because there's oh, a lot wow. of carbon. He's an astronomer. He was one of the people who discovered the cosmic background radiation. I think he may actually, I think he's the guy who invented the word Big Bang originally is a criticism of what he saw, thought was a ridiculous suggestion by his <laughs> That's wonderful, Jonathan. <laughs> so he also noticed that there were a lot of carbon co complex carbon compounds in space, which there are, and on other worlds, uh, which are clearly abiogenic in origin. And so he came up with two ideas. One is the earth must be full of vast oil and gas reserves below the fossil fuels. So we'll never run out and we should drill for them. And the other is that maybe some of these molecular clouds in space are actually intelligent, and maybe they cause every now and again rain down onto the earth as viruses and cause evolutionary genetic storms, which create mass extinctions. That's his idea. Um, and, and this was turned into a different science fiction story by Michael Crichton, The Andromeda Strain. Right. Right, oh. so the idea that the viruses have a collective intelligence and a collective goal is also straight Hoyle. Well, that's very helpful. I um, I have really, um, it's important to remember that Dr. Hat is actually in dialogue with science, no matter how easy it is to lose track of that idea. And this this obviously sounds like a moment where Dr. Who is in dialogue with this with this thing. Yeah. I, um, in many ways, I, I question whether Doctor Who is a science fiction series, uh, which we'll get to later. But this, I think, is very strong evidence against that. This is strong evidence that it is a science fiction series. Yeah. The idea that the Earth, if you poke it with a pin, blows up like a balloon makes no sense, of course, except teleologically, because what he says is the Earth returns to the gas cloud from which it formed as if this is simply the life cycle of the greed goo. It gets oh, caught wow. in planet formation mm. and it lives for a while and perhaps perfects itself and then breaks out again, like a virus. <laughs> as a it goes planet to infect other planets. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. So that's the, the life cycle of the Fred Hoyle Neumann machine. Uh, it's also um, uh, it's also 80% the Mormon's theory of time. So good work, everybody, I say. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, okay, we've... Well, we've Mormons speaking like of, of, Go. Speaking of Mormons, Stuart, this is somewhat off topic, but um, are you watching the, the documentary on Netflix? Well, I'm going to be worn down because people are asking me that question several times a day. So I, I better watch it because <laughs> people people need me to. 
What documentary is this? It's just, it's just, it's called Murder Among the Mormons. It's, it's this sort of very lurid um, docudrama about uh, um, uh, these these bombings in Salt Lake City um, that were sparked off by the um, the discovery of the White Salamander letter. Oh God! I have no idea what that even means. Okay, <laughs> there are going to be several courses that will deal with the White Salamander because because two of the institutes for major donors are Mormons. And so I have endeavored to insert more Mormon material into our programming, but not yet. Uh, starting in May, starting anyway, in May. It, it's just, <laughs> no, uh, I, it's, I'm not necessarily recommending it as a good show, but it's just. I'm gonna have to comment on it. And, uh, yeah. and we got to do a bunch of Mormon signups. Anyway, all right, let's. Um, I, I'm sorry, folks. I've, I've temporarily... Uh, sorry, that was off topic. <laughs> I've uh, temporarily lost track of this or that. Um, so uh, just to follow up, Michael, uh, the Mirror Universe, um, what does it have any different rules than um, we see in the Parallel Universe in Inferno? Um, I'm not sure about the rules, but in the Mirror Mirror episode, uh, and because of a transporter accident, Kirk winds up in the fascist universe where it's all the same crew except for, you know, more scantily clad uniforms and there's an eye patch and a goatee involved so that you know that Spock is extra bad. But uh, Kirk is having to um, pretend to be a fascist because he is supposed to exist in that universe. Meanwhile, fascist Kirk has made his way onto regular enterprise and hilarity ensues. But um, in the fascist world, the, the big center point is around um, obeying authority, uh, but your authority really comes down to how strong you are. So there's all this discussion around, um, you know, the captain having to brutalize his crew to sort of like a pirate captain, you know, the old idea of whoever the strongest guy on the ship is gets to be captain eventually. And he has a, uh, like a doomsday weapon that he can use to, to keep his crew in line by disappearing them. <laughs> um, so, you know, a lot of the same, you know, fascist tropes about everybody has to obey and everyone's a jerk and everyone um, enjoys inflicting pain on others and all that good stuff. As is very common in Star Trek specifically, the metaphor they use for fascism is not fascism, but the Roman Empire. In fact, oh, when, with decimations and the like. Yeah, but also one of the plot elements in, in Mirror Mirror is that maybe Kirk has ambitions of going to Earth and seizing power. And the title associated with that is Caesar. Ah. Of course I seize them. Um, well, and of course, but also let's recognize that, um, uh, as I think I said last episode, um, the idea of Caesar, not as an individual, but as a universalizable historical event and principle comes out of Oswald Spengler, uh, 
whose decline of the West is the key text informing uh, the Nazi movement. So um, it's a, uh, so the Caesar thing really, I mean, that's, that's, that's Spengler's directions for Hitler. Hitler's just following the book. Um, well, the comparison to Mirror Mirror, I think with Mirror Mirror, they changed the personalities of the characters quite a bit where in uh, Inferno, they kept the core of the people's personalities intact, just modified for their new circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yes, because as the it, fascism and... disappears, everybody's personality starts converging with their personality in the other universe, except the Brigadiers. Elena? And... I think the brigadiers uh, might be similar in the Inferno is a, it's a more the the fascism of Inferno is a, it's a more recognizable like you can see there's this direct line whereas the mirror universe the Star Trek mirror universe fascism is is a little more fantasy esque it's not as um, it, it doesn't feel quite as plausible a, a line it, from except one point to it, in in Enterprise when they do go into the mirror universe, they show a direct line of how Hitler wins. The Edith Keeler, again, another episode in Star Trek in 1967, City of the Edge of Forever, where Edith Keeler was not prevented by Kirk from preve- uh, preventing the United States from going into World War II. And so by doing so, she created the mirror universe because she allowed Hitler and the Nazis to win World War II. And, and that's that's a, th- a post facto imposition by the series Enterprise, right? Yeah, that's that's later. If you look at just the way they depict the true, the but it's canon. Different universes, but it's canon. But it also doesn't. It seems insufficient because I don't see why a fascist Earth would influence, for instance, the Vulcans to become fascist. I mean, I, I'm and also they happier actually show, with, they actually show um, that. <laughs> I'm happier with the mirror universe in Discovery. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not against uh, canonical Star Trek mirror universes. I, uh, I, I mean, the only people I really liked in that show were from the mirror universe. But um, <laughs> I, um, but I do. Th- I mean, the thing is, we're dealing with a script that's uh, that's written in 1969 and uh, produced in 1970. During this time, Edward Heath has scored a major upset election win uh, to uh, enter the common market. Um, And Margaret Thatcher has just got her first cabinet post as education minister. Um, And and generally, we try to just look backward um, for the context, for what could have informed the context of this show. And so... um, uh, and so I think Mirror Mirror is a is a compelling case. You have to ask, well, how is a plain reading of Mirror Mirror going to work out for somebody here, and how is that going to interact with Jonathan? You definitely contributed the most new data to understanding uh, this thing. I'm definitely going to revise my views of the show based on uh, looking up our astronomers. So. Um, is there anything else we want to cover before we come back? We're going further yeah. into fascism next episode. We're doing Genesis of the Daleks. Um, and uh, anything we want to conclude with today? 
Yeah, there's some issues. Uh, oh. So one thing, some obvious things that come up. I mean, there was actually a Cold War race. Who could dig the deepest hole into the earth between the Soviets and the Americans in the West? And this was part, this is informed by that. This was something that was playing out in the 1960s. Um, and I guess that's another allusion to the Cold War and I guess also to projects that really doesn't matter if one side or the other wins it, quote unquote. Uh, I mean, ultimately it might be catastrophic if they win. Also, um, there was a movie, Hole in the Earth, with the same premise. Yeah. Huh. Well, it's interesting that in this, it's a unipolar world. Often when people show authoritarian futures or authoritarian pasts, uh, it's bipolar worlds. Um, I found it quite interesting that, yeah, these folks are not in competition with anyone other than themselves. There isn't, like normally, especially if you're seeing a fascist society be depicted for over two hours, you'd expect some reference to the society's external enemies. And, uh, and we see none of that here. Um, we just see this, uh, this project, but you're quite right. It is clearly referential to these very strange contests of strength, uh, particularly uh, with Khrushchev, less so with Brezhnev. And the other thing it kind of reminds me of too is again, Britain's weird um, progress with nuclear energy, too. It kind of, um, I, I'm not really describing it properly, but it, they did not, they embraced nuclear energy to an extent, not like Canada or the United States or even France. Um, but again, it seemed to be backward compared to any other nation that was doing it at the time. Uh, and they were, hell-bent in doing it uh, with their own technology and um it didn't quite work it wasn't good like they made some of the worst nuclear reactors on the planet and and where they're still saddled with that matter of national pride right Keir starmer still had to ask answer a bunch of questions about trident and whether he'd continue it yeah well trident's an american technology fundamentally well, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a thing the british yeah. imagine is theirs well, the UK chose to borrow American technology for their weapons program and tied themselves to the Americans for that, where the French went completely on their own. Yes. But the civilian so that made an impact on the civilian as well. Yeah, the French have a much better civilian nuclear program than the British. Right. Um, uh, any, uh, uh, so... I think it is interesting that there's a lack of an external enemy. It's one of the strangest things about this thing, that the parallel world is the closest thing that ever appears to an external enemy. Um, and everything is um, uh, based on this idea that total hegemony has already been achieved in this world, which, um, yeah, most peculiar. Uh, well, we're um, we're seventy five minutes in. Uh, Alana, a last word. Um, just to get back to the feminism piece, um, mm -hmm. one other thing that I noticed was interesting um, is that in some ways the fascist world uh, obviously has more gender equality 
Oh, yes. Um, because Petra in the fascist world is not personal assistant to um, Stallman. She's uh, assistant director of the project. And when the American oil guy um, sort of hits on her, like in the, in our universe, like she, re she responds, but she also has to kind of take it. Whereas in, in the fascist universe, she's able to say, no, I'm the assistant director. You will give me the, the respect uh, that I'm due. And he does. Um, so obviously like people in general have a lot less freedom in that world, but um, but yeah, it was just interesting. That's, that's the strongest case I've heard for how they're talking about the Soviet world and not the fascist world. Because of course, at that point, there was such a difference between like before second wave feminism, the progress toward gender equality was so uneven, right? There had been a lot of backsliding in the West, whereas there had been steady progress in the East. So if you're hitting 1970, Brezhnev's only been in power for two years. Um, in this way, this really does resemble the Cold War and not uh, the 30s and 40s in the way that, uh, yeah, that women and, have, uh, have and, and exert and power in this world. Well, I think character is a serving member of the armed forces. Right. Um, which I don't think there are, like there's, there's no women in mil the military in the, in the English version. Anyway, it was just, it was just well, hold interesting. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on a second. Because but, at the same time, the fascist version of Liz Shaw is, is restrained in her attempt to become a scientist and is merely clearly. a soldier. And the doctor oh, yeah. holds that bigoted to the brig brigade leader's face. So, so what you have actually is a reversal of the progressiveness of the military versus the scientific world. Yeah, I think that that's that's definitely part of it. I mean, I think in lots of Soviet satellite regimes in the global south, um, you see that ra you see that rationale, right? There's civil society that's still misogynistic, and uh, if you're working class, your only point of entry into the state is the military, and it yeah it it is the it is less sexist than society because of. Uh, because of that dynamic, but you certainly, uh, but that's a point that yes. Well, yeah, well no, what is it in um, in uh, the Handmaid's Tale? Freedom from freedom to. Yeah, I, I think clearly there is uh, people are personally a lot more constrained because Elise Shaw may may have wanted to go into the sciences but wasn't able to because obviously a lot more people are are in the military or for or kind of shunted into the military in the fascist world, but. I just but thought it was. Of, and it also I shows that we're at the zenith of. Just one moment. It also shows we're at the zenith of the Enlightenment episteme here. Still, this the secularization thesis is still in effect because Liz's ability to have credibility in the fascist world comes from the fact that the fascists are just as committed to the pursuit of reason as uh, the non-fascists that the fascist world is, is still a, a creature of that enlightenment that's still going, information is the currency that can change power relations. 
Anyway, uh, I just yeah. anyways, the point is that I think they're 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 playing with the idea that the German fa that fascism and communism are more, are more or less interchangeable. Right? Yes, I, I think I think they they might they might lapse into it. I think if they were playing with it, we'd we'd notice them doing something ham-handed, uh, because they they play beautifully, but not precisely. No, uh, well, I mean, it's not, it's not ham-handed that the director of the project is literally named Stalin. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, on La Alana, last word, and then I'm logging off. They're they're definitely implying that the fascism in the mirror universe is a British fascism. Like I think the idea is that Mosley took power before the war, and that's yeah, why it's they, essay by the way, they are not the. But it is. But it's not the German What's that? They're using Soviet rifles. Uh, Oh, now that, oh, uh, I'm okay. sorry, I, I suck at material culture, so... Uh, Those are SKS rifles. They're Soviet late war semi-automatic rifles. I think they're a Kalashnikov design that precedes the one everyone has heard of. Oh, okay. The pistols are German, though, aren't they? Oh, my God. The pistols God. of P-38 is German, I agree, but... The, I'm fairly but, sure the pistols are okay, German. Okay, so the pistols yeah. are German, the pistols rifles are Soviet. The pistols are illegal. Soviet. <laughs> Wow. Um, what, for whatever that was. I've never taught a course that's gone quite this way before, uh, but this is excellent. This is just bloody excellent. Um, I am going to go. We've had, uh, we've had our 80 minutes or so, and we're going to come back to all of this discussion of fascism, all this discussion of Cold War authoritarianism illusions and Genesis of the Daleks, and we'll We'll pick right up there. <laughs>